Hello and welcome to Bondcast, a podcast series where we discuss our views on the latest themes and events shaping rates markets. I'm Imogen Bakra, Head of Non-Dollar Rate Strategy, and I'm joined today by our Global Market Specialists, Jan Navruzzi and Joanne Spadigan. Okay, another week of volatile rates markets um, and plenty of data this week for the markets to digest on both sides of the pond. Um, so perhaps let's start with that. And I'll start with you, Jan, on retail sales. That was obviously a, a big driver of, of market moves um, in the middle of this week, given the surprise to the upside. Do you think that there's much read across for that in terms of the Fed's reaction function from here? Yeah, like you said, retail sales surprised uh in a, in a strong way to the upside. And that was a bit conflicting with what we got from higher frequency data, such as, as you said, like the BEA will put out a weekly credit card spending data. Those implied that uh, we could have uh, we could have seen an actual negative print in the headline. Instead, the consumer retail spending month to month increased by 0.7%, right? That's a strong number. Even the core control group that feeds into the GDP increased by 0.6%, while uh, economists' forecasts, including ours, were something close to flat to 0.1 a month. So a substantial beat on the on the consumption side. Uh, you know, it, it, it just brings up the question of what is uh, the outlier here? Is it the weekly and the alternative uh, higher frequency data that we get in form of whether it be like private data, credit card providers, whether it is the, the PA's data uh, and some other like sentiment indicators, or is it this retail sales number that eventually feeds into GDP and is the set of the official uh, official data that we that we will you know make our big macro decisions on. Um, both of those, both the retail sales and other stuff, other data are prone to be revised. And in the past, we've had some retail sales like earlier in the year where we were seeing a general slowing down in, in trend growth. And we could have made the case that it would most likely be retail sales that would be revised lower. But this time, uh, th- this kind of meshes in well with the, the unexpected beat in non-farm payrolls, the kind of recent reacceleration of activity that we saw. So I don't know if, if retail sales was the erroneous one here. So uh, I'm willing to take it more or less at face value. There's always the... Uh, the nuances with seasonality and, and, and all sorts of adjustments. But uh, in any case, it just shows that consumption remains on a strong path. And it, this kind of this elusive dip in spending has still not reached us. Uh, like you said, on the back of that, we had a, a pretty big sell-off in rates. Uh, it it kind of started with the long end again, but it shifted more so to the front end as uh, traders pricing a little bit more so for Fed over the next couple of months. But it was more of a pricing out of cuts out of next year forward. So uh, kind of like one year, one year, one year, two year, oh, sorry, two year, one year type of like ex- expectations of where the Fed's going to finish once they start uh, cutting, to put it in uh, in plain words. Those were lifted substantially. And right now, as kind of walking into this room, we're at four and a quarter percent, right? Those were at three and a half not too long ago. So we've priced in a substantial amount of higher for longer, or I guess high for longer, because we've pretty much reached the uh, more or less the highs in, in the overnight rate that uh, that the Fed is kind of intended uh, message that they will deliver. So uh, what does that mean for the Fed, more importantly, for, for the next couple of meetings? We, we get a lot of this kind of, you know, back and forth between, well, the Fed hasn't done enough, they haven't impacted uh, the economy enough. 
But, I, you know, as a reminder, Fed has two mandates. It's unemployment and inflation. It's not just inflation. So uh, in a world where retail sales is much stronger than not, if you just look at that and, uh, you know, just uh, kind of like abstract yourself from what else, what everything else going, oh, SQL, that should imply a, a overheating or like a stronger economy, higher inflation. But we're simply not getting that in on the inflation side. Inflation uh, has been showing signs toward moderation. We're actually kind of, uh, slowly grinding toward, towards a more normal pace. We're not quite there yet, but a lot of the components within inflation have moderated. So there's no such thing that the Fed has to keep hiking until uh, unemployment goes up if inflation shows durable progress, which we believe is, it is on path to do. Uh, and with that, what does that mean? Well, it, it probably rightfully so increases the odds that the Fed should be on hold for longer. Uh, but we don't read too much into retail sales. We're, we're going to be more focused on purely like CPI and payrolls and uh, and see how that feeds into their uh, decision into next year because the path for this year is more or less clean. Maybe one more hike, we don't think so, but uh, the peak is very much so in sight. And uh, I mean, right after this podcast, Palace, but, well, well, between me recording it and uh, listeners listening to this, Powell will have spoken, but uh, I haven't heard him yet. So, uh, so we'll see if we get like an interesting message there. But my guess is it doesn't change that much for policy. I think on balance, it increases the odds for the Fed remaining on hold for longer. But I think that can shift pretty quickly and, and shorter dated yields are looking quite attractive here at like five, 525, and, uh, 520-ish in, in the two-year yields. Okay, you, you talked a lot there about the impact that the data has had, certainly in terms of front-end kind of rate expectations and, and the shift that we've seen over the last couple of weeks. Like you say, not just from retail sales, but kind of a across-the-board strength in, in data, in NFPs, in um, uh, inflation as well. What about the longer end of the curve? We've kind of had this continued march higher in everywhere, but in the US in particular and, and curve steepening. And we've got back to that kind of key 5% level in, in 30-year treasuries again. What's your view on the direction of travel from here or the shape of the curve, do you think? This will echo some of the stuff that we've been talking about the last few weeks that we have a steep interview and we, we've certainly accepted that that can be driven by a sell off in the long end. And that's why generally our stance was a lot more, uh, well, it had a lot more conviction in, in a steeper curve rather than, you know, being bullish duration in the long end. The 30-year bond has breached 5% again. Uh, and there's certainly a lot of things that are on, uh, on top of uh, top of mind for people who are looking to invest. Supply is definitely one of those things. And uh, we are you know, kind of, Treasury is in the process of releasing the next quarterly refunding. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more next week, but uh, the direction of travel and, and issuances towards more and more. Uh, additionally, the Fed has reached the kind of a terminal stance, uh, at least in hiking. So what does that mean? Well, you probably need a little bit more carry to entice people uh, to buy the long end. You probably need the curve to steepen a little bit more to entice unhedged and hedged for what it's worth, uh, foreign demand to to come in. Uh, so all of these things, as we remain in a, in a kind of a tight range in the front end, or I mean, relatively tight range in the front end compared to the past few years, I think the the path is towards steeper curves and in, in higher yields in the long end as those kind of longer day yields converge to the overnight rate. That is not really historically uncommon. That tends to happen towards the end of the cycle. But again, if we reach a point where data suddenly turns to the to the downside and we kind of 
the markets reached a conclusion that okay, now you know enough is not for the Fed. It's time to turn around. It's time to lower the rates a little bit. That probably will mark the peak in in long dated yields as well. Uh, I'm a believer that while there are other factors in the U.S., the overnight rate is the single strongest determinant of where longer yields will go. And once we start pulling, uh, once the Fed starts lowering those, real yields across the curve should come down in my view. Uh, but that's probably enough from the you know U.S. data side, and we can shift a little bit back to you on UK. So uh, we had a lot of data in the US to retail sales and such, but we also had a decent amount of releases in the UK too. Do you think any, any of those have shifted the needle for the Bank of England? Yeah, so we're recording this on Thursday. So we still have retail sales to come from the UK, but we've had the kind of major data releases that, that should really influence the bank sinking, i.e. the labor market data and the inflation. I think the inflation data this week was always going to be more important, not least because, as we now know, the labor market data has kind of been split into two. So we got um, next week, we will get the uh, labor force survey data in terms of the unemployment rate. Uh, and this week, we got the kind of average weekly earnings. But we know that the average weekly earnings data has kind of been lagging um, the employment trends where we're seeing kind of um, some loosening in the labour market. And we also had Pill, uh, Bank of England Chief Economist Hugh Pill on Monday, essentially saying that he thinks that um, the average weekly earnings data and the trend, the strength of the trend that we've seen there um, looks like a little bit of an outlier. So he already gave, I guess, markets less of a reason to uh, read too much into the labor market data this week. Plus, like I say, it was only really half the picture. Uh, but nonetheless, I think both the labor market data and the inflation data in the context of, you know, the kind of volatility of UK data um, in both directions over the last couple of months, um, they both looked relatively well behaved. Um, wage inflation uh, moderated, you know, only marginally, but but still a moderation. Uh, we saw, we did get the PAYE unemployment data, employment data, sorry, uh, and that continued to show um, a steady deterioration in employment trends. And then, of course, core inflation, um, although it was marginally above consensus, uh, did show um, another marginal decline. Um, so, you know, really, I think it was kind of that core inflation number that, that the BOE would have been looking for. You know, if you regular listeners of this pod will know that we've been a bit critical of the BOE in the last couple of months for their reaction function, seemingly be, being defined almost entirely by spot core inflation, essentially. Um, but we said over the last couple of weeks that we expected that we would have to get an upside surprising core to kind of 6.5% um, to really move the needle, I think, on, on BOE pricing for November. So all in, not anything in this week's data, I think, that would make you think that the BOE are any more likely to hike in November. Um, we previously said that there was a kind of 20% likelihood of a hike. Maybe now you're slightly shy of 20%, given that the data has been relatively well behaved. Uh, but, you know, market pricing of kind of five basis points for the November meeting looks looks roughly fair to us. Um, I think risks are probably still skewed to the upside. You know, there's clearly a lot of uncertainty around geopolitical tensions and the impact that that might have on um, energy prices. The UK in, in some ways is kind of uniquely exposed to higher energy prices, certainly more so than, than the euro area. Um, and of course, you know, wage inflation at 
you know, around 8% is still much higher than being consistent with the Bank of England's 2% target. Um, and that too could bring about some kind of additional inflationary pressures if those, uh, if that wage inflation doesn't come off as we expect it to um, in the wage negotiated negotiation process early next year but both of those risks kind of feel like maybe a late this year early q1 2024 kind of upside risk and so you know as you were saying dan it feels like you can be fairly confident that that the boe is is done at least for the next couple of meetings um I still think the bigger mispricing in UK front ends, um, which, you know, as you already went through, given the, the market moves in the US has kind of been US led, but is this repricing of the cutting cycle next year, you know, you can kind of rationalize it given a the fact that central bankers are still peddling this kind of higher for longer mantra, you know, they don't want the market to price in a particularly early pivot. Um the data in the US, like you say, has been stronger than elsewhere. And that's kind of uh, been weighing on on cut pricing in the UK as well. Um, you know, the Bank of England at times has been quite hard to read this year, the market hasn't had a huge amount of certainty over what it's doing in six weeks time, let alone what it's doing in six months time. So, um, you know, it's difficult to, to kind of think that the market would be pricing with any certainty or with any high degree of confidence the, the cutting cycle. But with only about 30 bips of cuts being priced in in 2024, to me, that just feels low. You know, it's our base case that the cuts, when they come, are in 50 bip increments. So really, that market pricing is implying kind of 50% chance of, a, of one cut next year, uh, which, which feels on the low side to me. Um and certainly that's come off a lot over the last kind of week or so, driven by mostly by the US. But but even when you look at the US, you know, the market's pricing in kind of 60 basis points of, of cuts. It kind of double what, what you're expecting in the UK. And, and arguably, you know, the data is holding up better there. I mean, granted, you might have kind of higher inflation in the UK now and perhaps additional risks of, of stickiness. Um, but it, it does seem to me like that spread between the two in terms of cut pricing is, is still too large. And, uh, you know, again, I, I like doing this, start off with the front end, and we now go further out the curve. And I mentioned key levels in the U.S. too, but we have had hit some uh, key levels in, in gilts as well, similar to the U.S., exactly, actually the same percentage. And uh, in 30-year gilts, they've kind of came back to 5% now, and the 10-year gilts are now at 4.6%, which uh, uh, for a lot of people, those are very uh, technical ranges that people, uh, that people tend to observe. So uh, just... Does that mean that they'll bounce back from here or do you think there's still more room to go? <laughs> I'm a bit cautious in calling it with too much conviction because I think about two weeks ago I came on the pod when we first reached 4.6% uh, and I said very confidently that I felt like the risk was skewed quite heavily to an overshoot uh, and pretty much the next day I think they rallied all the way back down to kind of the lows of recent ranges. So <laughs> I would say um, I, I think probably... You know, it's interesting that actually this is the fourth time now this year that gilts, 10 year gilts have broken through 4.6%. Um, and each of the first three times we have rallied back down quickly for different reasons. You know, there was big front end repricing as the data turned. Um, there was obviously, you know, very recent, more recently, we've had this kind of geopolitical concerns driving a bit of a flight to quality bid but even today on Thursday when we're recording this you know the market seems to have settled a little bit as we've reached these kind of globally 
imp or, or important levels globally in fixed income, like you say, kind of 5% in 10-year treasury, 30-year um, treasuries. And we're not seeing major, you know, we saw a bit of a spike up in yields this morning on the um, UK open, but we have settled broadly in within the range of the lower end of the range of, of the day. And I think maybe that in itself is telling, you know, despite the bearish momentum in the market, we are struggling so far to meaningfully sell off beyond these kind of key resistance levels. Um, you know, I still think the supply risks are skewed to the upside. I still think demand is is very low for for duration in general, but but certainly for gilts. But I probably would have more confidence in either the curve shape or the performance of gilts on a cross market basis than I would have in say calling the next I don't know fifty bit move in duration. And and there, I think I still think that the long end can be somewhat protected by the fact that I think LDI demand does return relatively lower yield levels for the longer end of the curve. And by there, I'm thinking the sort of 20 to 30 part of the curve for reasons that I think they're kind of shifting their demand a little bit shorter. Um, and I think that the DMO probably in the autumn statement, we'll talk about our kind of expectations for that in more detail over the next couple of weeks. But I think the DMO will continue this marginal shift shorter in their issuance, partly in response to this loss of kind of structural loss of demand at, at the longer end of the curve. Um, and I continue to be of the view that that gilt should underperform on a cross market basis. You know, supply is high everywhere. We've talked about it a lot in regard to the US, the UK, and the euro area on this pod. But I think it should weigh most heavily in the UK. You know, as a kind of proportion of the size of the market, it's a much bigger increase in net supply over the next couple of years. The BOE is doing QT at a faster pace relative to the size of the balance sheet, and there's just real structural. Uh, losses of demand in the UK, which I don't think you see um, in the euro area and certainly not really um, in, in treasuries either. And, you know, we're kind of hearing frequently if you can get 30 year treasuries and 30 year gilts at the same level, then, um, you know, which one would you prefer to buy? And certainly um, with treasuries yielding over 10 year gilts, then I think there's a kind of general preference to take the pickup in treasuries right now. Um, but yeah. You, you mentioned LDI there for a second, and I want to dig deep a little bit and see talk about like the structural demand for them. There has been a lot of chatter uh, recently about this kind of like the actual assumption that go into mortality estimates of of you know that the LDI use for their for the, for building their portfolios. Do you think yeah. that has had an impact? Anything does that have anything to do with like the structural demand? You're talking about their need to shorten duration, perhaps. I think. Sometimes it can always be easier to kind of backfit what we now know to be, I don't know, changes in the data and what we did see in kind of our flows or what we did see in market moves. But certainly um, when it comes to UK LDI, there has been a big discussion recently about shifts in mortality rates. So just by way of a little bit of background, we've recently had an update in mortality rates. The CMI, the Continuous Mortality Investigation, um, have reassessed uh, life expectancy in the UK following the kind of volatility in the life expectancy data or the mortality rates through the pandemic years. Um, and the conclusion is that there has been a lasting impact from the pandemic 
on mortality rates and therefore life expectancy um, is now um, lower in the UK. And, and this is not a UK only phenomenon. It's something that, that's kind of happened worldwide, I presume. Um, but really that's important because defined benefit pension funds in the UK and insurers, they use these mortality assumptions to kind of feed into uh, their models that, that look at the, the value of their liabilities and so if you have lower life expectancy, i.e. people aren't living as long, then the duration of their liability shrinks. And obviously that matters for, um, you know, their hedging needs and, and their funding levels. And ultimately, you know, we're thinking about this as being a dri another driver of um, shorter demand or a loss of demand for kind of ultra long um, gilts and, and linkers, which has traditionally been the, the bread and butter, I suppose, of um, uh, LDI in investment. Um, our pension and insurance, our in-house pension and insurance content team have done a really detailed note on this. So if this is something that really interests you and you want to kind of dig into the data, uh, please get in touch and we can share that note with you um, if you have access to our market insights page. Uh, but I think the important conclusion here for markets is that we shouldn't overstate the impact of this kind of one-off um, change in mortality rates. But the assessment is that, you know, their model suggests that this could continue. This is a trend that can continue in the years ahead um, and whilst you know all else equal this one change doesn't necessarily trigger a huge shift in terms of pension fund demand for gilts I think that it does add just one other bearish influence in terms of you know a kind of structural shift at, at in terms of the shape and, and size of their demand um, uh, to a, a long list of reasons why, you know, LDI have not been as present um, in the market this year as they would usually be, which clearly is, is a negative, I suppose, when we think about just how much issuance is, is still to come in the UK. So, you know, we've seen many reasons put you know together of, of, of as to why LDI haven't been as active in the market there's been an element I guess of just still kind of licking their wounds after everything that happened over the last year um, we've seen schemes increase their hedge ratios we've seen um, funding ratios be higher than they've ever been uh, we've seen a natural shrink in their liability profiles not because of the mortality rate but just because most of these schemes are close to new members and therefore with every year that goes by their liability profile naturally shrinks again you have this kind of added uh, element to that around the now with the mortality rates um and we've also had you know or i guess this is a longer term theme and it's not yet in play but we also have the government that are kind of looking at ways in which they can encourage pension funds uh, and insurance to buy uh uk growth assets essentially and and steer them away from um the traditional investments like gilts and linkers which um seems questionable in an environment where they have so much um uh, guilt issuance to get through but nonetheless lots of lots of reasons why ldi demand hasn't been what it was um over the last decade and reasons why we don't think it's ever going to return to the levels that that we have been used to over the last decade and this mortality rate story i think is is just one part of that um but like i say this kind of adds bearish influences once you take away the bank of england and you take away pension funds as major sources of demand for for gilts and linkers it um you know there's a real open question here of, of who will be able to absorb all of the supply that that the dmo has to issue this year 
Anyway, we will talk much more about all of that supply over the next couple of weeks as we near the autumn statement. Uh, so let's move on to the euro area because um, slightly ahead of the autumn statement, we have the ECB next week. Um, Joanne, what are we expecting from their decision next week? The ECB meeting really does seem to have been a, a pretty non-event really uh, in recent times. It really does seem like the ECB has called the end of the hiking cycle at the last meeting. And the communications we've got from the council members, both hawks and doves, do also indicate that that has been the case. So we're really going into this meeting not expecting very much in terms of a policy change. Uh, we're expecting no hike to take place in line with the market. Uh, we're not expecting too many surprises there, given the communications we've got. I do think the kind of picture that we get from the data supports this view as well, where you know growth is has been weakening and is bottoming out, and at the same time the inflation print for September was lower than expected, and we do continue to expect that October's print will also uh, be impacted by base effects who will come in um, below September's print. So this kind of picture of growth um, kind of stagnating and inflation coming down as well, I think, does give the ECB enough there to um, proceed with that pause for this meeting as well. Um, and I think that's kind of what we will get from the meeting. The ECB have very much shifted their focus over the last couple of weeks. As you say, they kind of clearly signaled that the last meeting was the end of their hiking cycle and it didn't take them long at all to shift the focus from level of rates and, and the hiking cycle towards balance sheet reduction. Um, they said at the last meeting that they hadn't discussed it, but it feels like uh, every single governing council member since then has been on the wires with some opinion on some form of balance sheet reduction. Um, so do you think it's likely that, that anything on that comes up at this meeting? Um, do you have any kind of updated views on that? What, what will the stance be? I think, like you've said, there's been so much talk about PEP uh, and shifting reinvestments or not uh, since the last governing council meeting. Uh, I do think that it will be difficult with really not much else to discuss on the agenda for them not to discuss PAP. So I do think there's definitely going to be some sort of discussion around PAP, um, whether they want to shift it or not. And I think the views are really spread out amongst the committee. Um, we've seen, I think, a little bit more of a cautious approach being taken after we've seen spreads widen a bit over the last couple of weeks. Um, I do think that there is this a little bit of, uh, I suppose, caution in any shift in PAP given that there is a risk as well of fragmentation if they do take PEP away and then spreads widen. So I think any kind of shift in PEP is likely to come with some kind of conditionality or will really depend on the market conditions. And um, it does seem like the committee members are a bit worried about that, but I do think it will be difficult for them to avoid a discussion given that there are people that want to kind of push that um, on the agenda. For this meeting, I'm not expecting any really big change in terms of PEP. I think if they're asked about whether they, whether they discuss it or not, they will say yes. Um, but I don't think there will be any change in stance or any guidance coming out of this meeting. We are expecting that guidance to come in the first half, the first half of next year uh, and for a shift in the PEP kind of reinvestment schedule to mid-24 from the end of 2024. So nothing really on the cards for now, but really keep, uh, keep an eye out and watch for that going forwards. Okay, well, let's leave it there then and we will catch up straight after the ECB next week um, and hopefully touch on the Treasury's quarterly refunding announcement as well because I know that that will be in focus for lots of people given everything over the last couple of weeks.
Okay, thank you both for joining me. Thank you to our listeners for listening in. If you liked today's episode, please don't forget to hit the like button and click subscribe so you can get the latest episodes as soon as they're available. Thanks, see you next week.